The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. In October 1988, Aisa Wayne, daughter of John Wayne, and her boyfriend Roger Luby were brutally assaulted by a pair of gunmen on their way home from an aerobics class. Was this attack a retaliation to some of Luby's shady business dealings? Or was Aisa's soon-to-be ex-husband the one behind the assault? I'm Vinny Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have an audio edition of our original series, Someone They Knew, with Tamron Hall. This episode is entitled, The Duke's Daughter. Have a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast. John Wayne is probably the best-known person that's ever resided in Newport Beach. John Wayne, to me, was a larger-than-life icon. Aisa Wayne was John Wayne's daughter. Aisa made some interesting choices in terms of men. She started dating Roger Luby. They had gone to a morning exercise class, and they're confronted by two men with handguns. One man took out a knife and severed his Achilles tendon. They took her head and hit her a couple of times on the concrete. It sounded almost like a mafia thing. It was like a hit. October 3rd, 1988, Aisa Wayne, the daughter of movie star John Wayne, and her boyfriend, Roger Luby, were brutally assaulted after returning home from an aerobics class. They were bound, beaten, and the assailants sliced Luby's Achilles tendon. Police initially believed that Luby was the focus of this egregious attack due to his checkered business dealings. But as detectives got deeper into the investigation, it was clear that Aisa Wayne was the target. Newport Beach was a lot of fun. I moved to Southern California in the 80s. It's beautiful people, beautiful weather, and I loved it. I would tell people that the city was kind of like a city of uh, tides. In the morning, the business people come in, they leave about four. Dinner crowd comes in about six, they leave at nine. And then 10 p.m. to closing was when the wild animals came into town to hit the bars. John Wayne is probably the best known person that's ever resided in Newport Beach. And he was well-known in all the restaurants in the town of Newport. He was a celebrity of celebrities, I would say. Three days of world premiere events for Universal's The War Wagon, starring John Wayne and Kirk Douglas. What a welcome. John Wayne, to me, was a larger-than-life icon. He was a mythical cowboy on the high horse. He, you know, all these, uh, you know, hundreds of Westerns, and, you know, he was just uh, really kind of Americana. Orange County was really kind of synonymous with John Wayne. You, you, you fly into Orange County, it was, it's the John Wayne Airport. There's actually a huge statue of the Duke. Aisa Wayne was John Wayne's daughter. She played in several of his movies. She was John Wayne's little girl. I mean, you know, it's like my daughters. They sort of have you wrapped around their, your little finger. Aisa made some interesting choices in terms of men. Thomas Jonas was an orthopedic surgeon in Pomona. They had met on a blind date in 1986. They got married pretty quickly, and they had a kid within a year, Anastasia. 
Tom Jonas is a, a unique person. He has a huge ego, and I think he basically can be described as a man where rules don't apply to him. I'm sure she had a lot of expectations for a wonderful marriage, but really the problems start seem to happen when Anastasia was born. They were involved in a divorce proceedings and who was going to have custody. The split between Aisa and Thomas Jonas was extremely messy. I mean, the, there, there's, there's tons of claims, counterclaims. There were papers filed in the custody dispute by Aisa Wayne, uh, alleging all kinds of um, violent behavior on the part of Giannis and, and very threatening kind of behavior. After her divorce with Jonas, she started dating Roger Luby. Jonas did not like that. Roger uh, was a, a very successful real estate guy. He made uh, millions of dollars in the mortgage finance industry, and he went into uh, development. Basically, uh, he had a lot of problems. Well, let's say he was mischievous in his life. On October 3rd, 1988, Aisa had been staying with Roger Luby in his residence in town. They had gone to a morning exercise class and uh, we drove home, and to get into his estate there, they opened the gate, turned into the garage, and as they're getting out of the car inside the garage, they're confronted by two men with handguns. They said, are you Roger Libby? And Roger Libby said yes, and they proceeded to tie them up, and they started beating Roger on the ground. One man took out a knife and severed his Achilles tendon. Then they turned to Aisa and took her head and also hit her a couple of times on the concrete, uh, causing her to bleed. They said, you messed with the wrong guy. You do this again, we're gonna kill you. It left the impression as though this was a retaliatory move and an act of intimidation. Roger was severely wounded, was bleeding heavily. They were taken to Hogue Hospital, which is just down the street. They were treated and released. Aisa got more than two dozen stitches. He had to go into a hip to ankle brace for like months afterwards for treatment of his uh, Achilles tendon. There was a lot of damage. And he would complain even for months and years later, there's still numbness in it. He was, he was never really the same after that. I knew Roger Luby before this crime occurred. I had interviewed him as a result of an organized crime investigation. There was a lot of inference that that threat and the egregious attack against Roger made him the focus of the crime. They'd ask, are you Roger Luby? They didn't say, are you Roger Luby? They are you Roger Luby? Yes, okay, boom. The Achilles tendon. It sounded almost like a mafia thing. It was like a hit. Roger Luby, he was on the hook for like, $54 million in money to redevelop an old Broadway department store. And his investors bailed on him like halfway through, and so he was kind of screwed. He had to file for personal bankruptcy, and he was in massive litigation. And so at first, there was a lot of speculation that they were after him. I interviewed Aisa Wayne the next day, and I also interviewed Roger Luby separately. They ran through the whole scenario of the crime. 
One of the interesting aspects of that, as the suspects were leaving, Roger Luby looked back and watched suspect number one as he left, and it looked like to him he had a bad leg, a very pronounced limp, and he noticed that. Detective Sergeant Mike Jackson and Detective John Desmond took a hard look at every person that was associated with their lives. No one backed away from any of the elements of potential criminality. And ultimately, this started to focus more on the good doctor and Aisa Wayne than on Roger Luby. The day of the attack, there was no surveillance. Suddenly, out of the blue, there was no issue or interest in what Aisa Wayne was doing that particular day. All signs pointed toward Roger Luby as being the intended victim of the assault. But after interviewing Luby and Aisa Wayne, Detective Sergeant Mike Jackson of the Newport Beach PD had a different theory one that centered on Wayne and the custody battle for her daughter, Anastasia. And talking to Aisa, she knew that Tom Jonas wanted custody of the baby girl. And he hired a private investigator, Dan Gal, to see and monitor Aisa's activities as to how much time did she really spend with the child. I wanted to talk to Dan Gabb because if he's been monitoring Aisa, was he on scene when this attack occurred and what did he see? He said he was there in the morning and didn't see anything. Then I asked him if he had workers that worked for him that fit the description of the two suspects. And he says, no, the man with the bad limp, he'd never seen him before didn't know anything about him. There were bills and billing records showing that this surveillance was daily or near daily. And then suddenly, the day of the attack, there was no surveillance. Suddenly, out of the blue, there was no issue or interest in what Aisa Wayne was doing that particular day. And the suggestion was, where was the private investigator? Why didn't he witness this? And then, of course, that raised the specter that perhaps he was involved. Over the years, I have found in investigations that an ex-wife can be a very worthwhile witness. So I had a private investigator friend of mine look up Dan Gal and see if he's ever been divorced. And he found out that he had. I gave Jackie Hale, the ex-wife of Dan Gal, the description of my suspect number one, the man with the bad leg. And I asked her if Dan ever had an employee that worked for him with that issue. And she says, yes, he does. Jerry, I'm not sure of the last name, Hintergarten or something like that. So then, right now, I know I've got Dan Gal in a lie that he does employ a worker with those physical handicaps. He has a sister named Emmy Gal, and she was keeping track of the business 
for him. She said, as far as she knew, Dan Gale was now in Europe. So I write up a search warrant and I go search his office, which was basically a treasure trove for me. Inside that office, I find files on Hindergart, suspect number two, Jeff Bowie. I've got his cell phone bills with numbers and everybody he's called. And he had one little file on Jonas. And then I find faxes that Emily is communicating with Dan in Europe. And some of those uh, faxes are basically if Sergeant Jackson is snooping around looking for me, tell him I'm in San Francisco, tell him I'm in New York, tell him I'm in Spain on a wild goose chase. And one of the faxes, the sister says, I took all the Jonas files and they're in my apartment. They started looking into his phone records, and he had made uh, seven phone calls that morning between him and Jonas. The phone record showed a relationship between Odette Daniel Gal and Tom Jonas with direct connections. There was uh, calls that were going out to a couple of other people, and it turns out one was Jerry Hindergart, another one, Jeffrey Bowie. Dan Gal is calling Hintergart and Bowie at 5 o'clock in the morning, probably to say, come up and let's do this thing. And then afterwards, he's calling Jonas on the phone, right? So there's a connection with all four of these people on the phone calls. And then I also got the bank records of all the checks he's been writing to Dan Gal. I wanted to get the actual original check, and I wanted to avoid any questions as to the evidentiary value. We'd served a search warrant at the bank that did business with Dr. Tom Jonas's clinic. And when we arrived at the location, we came in without any warning and went into the bank president's office to tell him that we needed to find this check. He told me that was not possible. And he said, you leave the search warrant, we'll find the record, and we'll turn it over to you if it exists. And I explained to him, and I pointed back to the door, I said, we're going to chain this door. We're going to take all of your employees and we're gonna sit them down and everybody's gonna be searched. And we're going to have to search everything inside this bank until we find that check. The first place that I'm gonna start with this in-depth examination of this facility is your desk and your briefcase. It's your call. And uh, miraculously and quickly, the check was located and we were able to get the evidence and we left. Jonas paid him $40,000 within the two weeks of the attack. And before that, they paid him another $25,000, $65,000 in like six weeks to like just track his wife. There's a lot of money. And so that's when, like, everything went from, like, Roger Luby to Thomas Jonas, like that. The Jonas connection is Aisa. Detectives had connected the dots from Dr. Jonas to private investigator Dan Gal and the two hitmen for hire, Jerry Hintergart and Jeffrey Bowie. Now police had to apprehend the suspects without tipping off the doctor, who investigators believed was a flight risk. 
arresting Jerry Hindegard was interesting because we had to track him down. He had moved from one place to another, changed girlfriends, and through connections with those friends, I find a woman that says his new girlfriend that he's living with just moved to Burbank. So I showed Burbank police, I've got the warrant. I need some help arresting this man. I don't want to lose this man. So we go out to this like a four-unit apartment complex, and they got the place surrounded. I got a canine officer, and I've got a helicopter overhead. So I call the girl's phone number, and he answered. Well, hey, Jerry, Sergeant Jackson, Newport Beach Police Department. I got a warrant for your arrest. And he says, oh, you get the wrong guy. It's not me. It's you got the wrong place. I said, give the phone to Tracy, the name of his girlfriend. And about that time, I signaled to the Burbank Police Department, have the helicopter drop down and light up his unit into the canine officer to get that dog barking. She gets the phone and he, she is screaming her head off. What is going on? You know, what is this? And I said, is that Jerry Hennegart next to you? And she says, yes. Give the phone back to Jerry. But I said, you're not going anywhere, so come on down. And he did. He surrendered. Our next move is to go after Bowie and take him into custody. Bowie had no idea that John Wayne's daughter was the victim of this assault. And he was startled when he was told that by Detective Sergeant Mike Jackson. And as I sat there in the room and I saw Bowie's reaction, I knew that he was gonna flip. He cooperated with the law enforcement authorities and ultimately became a uh, witness against Oded Daniel Gal. Since I knew Dan Gal was in Europe and I had warrants for the two suspects already, I obtained a warrant for Dan Gal because he, I can show he hired them. I knew from the faxes in his office that he was doing work in Geneva, Switzerland. Well, Geneva, Switzerland is an expensive place to live. I found out through the Geneva police, a lot of workers live across the border in France. They come across the border to work in Geneva. And when you come across the border, they check you. And one day he's coming across the border and the Interpol warrant pops up and the Geneva police took him into custody and notified us. Sergeant uh, Rich Long, who I've worked with a long time, called and uh, let me know that arrangements had been made that uh, Dan Gal was coming back to the U.S. from Europe and needed some assistance with manpower to help get him from A to B. We got the plane uh, exited with passengers, and then uh, Oded Daniel Gal was walked out by two United States Marshals. We did not take him to the Newport Beach Police City Jail. We took him to the Grand Hyatt Resort where we had arranged for a set of rooms that were adjoining to be able to establish a comfortable place to take an interview and a full confession that we recorded. He was aware of the serious felony level prison time he was gonna be serving. And so he saw an opportunity to become a state's witness and cooperate with the authorities. 
By the time I got to Tom Gionis, I'm kind of fearful that he would flee the country. So we're kind of keeping an eye on him. He lived in a nice house out in Pomona. So when I had the warrant, I had a couple of detective cars were on each side of the house, and I called him up. I said, tonight's the night, Tom. We either come in and get you or you, you come out. And it wasn't four or five minutes. That garage door opened up. He's, he's holding on to his pants. He's got his sh socks and shoes in one hand. And he's, he came right out. When we took him into custody, he was trying to make bail and get out. I was alerted that Dr. Gionis had put in an application for an immediate emergency passport production, and he had to file a statement, and it involved a death in the family, which is something that our government would try to accommodate so you could fly overseas quickly and attend a family funeral, only there was no death. The only reason that he wanted to get to Greece was to be out of the reach of the authorities of the United States, which was uh, frankly damning to the innocence part of Jonas's argument. It's only my opinion, but I'm sure that it was intimidation of Aisa because of the divorce proceedings and who's gonna get the daughter. And I guess it got out of hand in that garage, which caused probably much more publicity than the doctor would have wanted closer scrutiny of everything. The first Giannis trial in 1990 ended with a hung jury. The Orange County DA's office was not going to let that happen a second time. They put the case in the hands of rising star deputy DA Jeff Robinson. Dr. Giannis also switched attorneys. He brought in the man who defended the Gotti crime family, the infamous Bruce Cutler. The first trial, Chris Evans was the district attorney, great guy. They were trying to be so inclusive of different charges. I, I think they wanted to be able to file on Jonas that he told the suspects to bring guns with them. And I don't know if the jury would buy that. And actually, that's, that's what happened. They had nine guilty and three not guilty. So they were going to retry him. And that's where Jeff Robinson came in. He was assigned to our homicide division. And I would say one of the highly respected homicide attorneys in our office and probably in Orange County. So he directed the second trial. The second trial was interesting because a very prominent, well-known New York attorney showed up on the scene. And that attorney was Bruce Cutler. And Bruce Cutler had a lot of fame because he actually defended John Gotti. You have an opening statement to make, uh, Mr. Robinson? Yes, Your Honor. You're going to hear, by way of proof through the people's evidence, of kind of a uh, convoluted web, if you will, a conspiracy among a number of people to pull off a criminal enterprise, that is, formed to pull off an assault that took place for reasons you're going to hear about. And when I say a criminal enterprise, what the evidence is going to show is this, is that this is not just the work of an assailant going to the scene and slicing that Achilles tendon. This is the work of a field general, if you will, starting way back up here, 
with orders being passed down to individuals who may not have even had contact from bottom to top. The combined pieces of evidence will show a picture that the defendant got angry and out of vengeance, he got evil. And that in essence, uh, he wanted violence done and he got it. The evidence will show you that the victim of the assault was in fact Roger Luby. And that Aisha Wayne happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The evidence will show you that. Well, what evidence, Mr. Cutler? The words of the assailants will show you that. The place where the assault occurred will show you that. The actions by the assailants will show you that. A message was delivered to Roger Lubin, not to Aisha Wayne. No message about any custody, about any husband, about Tom Jonas, about baby Anastasia, about money, about anything. No message like that. Bowie is going to testify and give you his version of what happened and why. What is in it for Mr. Bowie? You'll hear evidence that it's three years and eight months after the incident. He hasn't been sentenced, he hasn't been tried, he hasn't even been arraigned, and he's not in jail. You'll hear evidence from Mr. Bowie, and it'll lead you to deduce that he's singing a tune for a reason. He's saying things for a reason, to benefit himself, to fit into a mosaic, into a pattern, into a theory. When the theory is wrong, it falls. When the target of the assault is not the target, then the road to Dr. Jonas is the wrong road, the evidence will show. Cutler, his strategy was, uh, for me sitting in a courtroom, I'm from New York, this is my client, everybody knows me, and I tell you the truth, my client's innocent, and that's just the way it is. He was cordial to the folks, but very arrogant. State your full name. Aisa Maria Wayne. Miss Wayne, do you know the defendant, Tom Jones? Yes, I do. And did you have a daughter by Tom Jones? Yes, I did. And what is her name? Anastasia. When were you married to Tom Jones? Um, in February of 1986. And did you remain married for a period of time? Yes. Were there some threats made by Dr. Jonas to you before you left the home? Yes. Can you tell us what threats did Dr. Jonas make to you before you left with your baby? He threatened that he would kill me or anybody else that got in the way of him and his child. That was one of the threats. Another threat was that if I messed with him or the baby, something to that effect, um, that my body would be dead. That was the exact words. And um, the third threat was that if I left him, that he would take the baby to Greece and I'd never see her again. This man, according to people I talked to, has a huge ego. And she was afraid of the doctor. She wanted a divorce. Did you tell him you were leaving or did you leave without him knowing? I left without him knowing. And why? Because I was afraid of him. Did you ultimately become involved in a child custody dispute with your ex-husband, Tom Jonas? Yes. 
It was just gonna be a real bad, messy, ugly, cussy fight. And I was nitpicky and he was nitpicky and we both were um, trying to get custody of our daughter. Be fair to state, Miss Lane, that both sides were involved in this beef, if you will. Yes. Objection to beef, you I would just, I, I would just stand up, Judge. Daniel Gal had been surveilling Aisa Wayne's movements round the clock, and then there was a trip to Sedona, Arizona. To your knowledge, had you requisitioned anybody to take photos of you as you were there in Sedona? No. Subsequent to your trip to Sedona, Arizona, have you been shown uh, at a previous hearing a number of snapshots that appeared to be yourself, Sarah, Anastasia, and Roger Luby while in Sedona, Arizona? Yes. When Tom Gionis saw Anastasia, his daughter, fawning over Roger Luby poolside at this resort, his behavior changed visibly, according to a dead Daniel Gal. And what ended up uh, putting him over the edge was the idea that his daughter was being taken away from him. Jumping ahead to October the 3rd, 1988, when you arrived at the house of Roger Luby, did you pull, where did you pull the car? Into the garage. When you pulled in, what if anything happened? Well, I pulled into the garage and I got out of my side of the car and I turned around and I saw two men that I had not, I didn't know who they were. And they were coming towards Roger Luby and myself. So when they came up, who did the first bit of talking between all the parties? Mr. Hendergaard. And what did he say? He said, are you Roger Luby? And what, if anything, was said in response? I think he said yes. And then what happened? And then Roger said, is this some kind of a joke? And the guy said, hit him over the head with the gun and said, this ain't no mother joke. Get down on the ground. And at that same time, the other man grabbed me and pushed me to the ground. And then he handcuffed me. Miss Wayne, at that point, what did you think was going to happen once you were handcuffed and your face was down at that point? I thought I was going to die. At no time did either thug ask you who you were, did they? No. At no time did either thug mention Tom Jonas, did they? Bruce Cutler had a boisterous style that straddled the line between the practice of law and the business of entertainment. However, Cutler's act had not been road tested here, and no one knew how the jury would receive his bigger-than-life persona. All right, Mr. Cutler, you may cross Thank you, Norman. The incident that you described October 3rd was an unpleasant incident, to say the least, Miss Wayne. It's a terrible thing. You'd agree with me. Yes. The first words that you heard them say were, are you Roger Loby, right? Yes. At no time did either thug ask you who you were, did they? No. At no time did either thug mention Tom Jonas, did they? No. At no time did either thug mention a custody trial. Right. At no time. Did either thug mention a baby? 
correct? Correct. If the facts are against you, you pound on the law. If the law is against you, you pound on the facts. And if they're both against you, you pound on the table. And there's no question that in this case, Bruce Cutler had the facts that were against him, the law was against him, and you could probably find no better table pounderer than Bruce Cutler. Is it not a fact that while you and Mr. Luby were in the ambulance driving to the hospital on the 3rd of October, did you say to him, Roger, do you think it was the lenders? Did you say that to him? Did I say that to him? It's possible I could have said that. And by lenders, you were referring to people that Uncle Roger was suing in federal court, were you not? Yes. Bruce Cutler was making it so John Wayne's daughter, Aisa, was on trial and Richard Luby was on trial. So you really had this, this very strange situation. What the prosecution decided to do in this case was step back and be very factual. Once you pulled into the garage, what's the next thing you recall happening? I got out of the car. I got out on the passenger side, and Aisa got on, out on the driver's side. We were leaving the car and leaving the garage when I saw two men moving through the gate at a, a, a brisk pace and coming towards us. The larger of the two men asked me if I was Roger Luby and still moving, and it was a continuous flow, and I said I was. When you observed the gun, what, if anything, did you do? I said, uh, is this a joke? By that time, he was, uh, Mr. Hindergart was very close to me, and that's when he um, said, this isn't no joke, and that's when he proceeded to hit me with the pistol. Now, Mr. Luby, once you felt the restraints placed around your ankles, what occurred from that point? He was in a straddling position, moved up and grabbed the back of my hair and repeatedly smashed my face into the concrete garage floor. He went to my right Achilles, right ankle, and cut it. All right, now, as you were on the ground, you know obviously what adrenaline is? Yeah. Was your adrenaline going at that time? Everything was going at that time. Yeah, I was scared of that. So the theory is that Jonas was just seething with rage against Aisa over this whole situation with his daughter, and he wanted to send a message. You don't mess with me, period. Orthopedic surgeons know what happens when you cuss someone's Achilles tendon. It's not good. It's bad. And so it's very much a message thing. Uh, very old world. What did you see and or hear when Mr. Hindegard went over to the other side of the car? I uh, saw uh, him, this, this guy grabbed Aisa by the hair and smashed her face into the, into the garage floor. He stood over and said, you're with the wrong people. Jonas was the fund provider for this. Gal is the one that retained the two gunmen. I can't speak as to how he had acquired their partnership, but I know that they were the two that he had hired and paid to commit the attack. Mr. Lewick, directing your attention back to 1987, do you recall a period of time in or about May or June when you had a conversation with Dr. Jonas, uh, reference uh, his wife, Aiza? Yes, I did. And 
What was the nature of, of the initial contact and conversation? He told me he was upset about the fact that uh, Aisa had taken the baby, and he was upset about the circumstances of the separation. After stating that he was upset, did he make any comments about what he could or couldn't do reference to Aiza if she left him with the baby? Strong wrong object to the leading nature of the question. Objection to He made the further comment that she had no idea how easy it would be for him to pay somebody to really take care of her. But there were longs of calls car phone calls between you and the others, which eventually... Between me? That was never said, no. never proven, and absolutely false. Dr. Gionis would not testify at the trial, neither with the other three men involved in the conspiracy. Once again, Bruce Cutler would put on a show for the jury in his attempt to persuade them that his client was indeed innocent. Mr. Cutler told you in his opening statement, and then you're gonna hear from Mr. Bowie. You didn't hear from Bowie here. Bowie is singing the tune for a reason. He's saying things for a reason to benefit himself. I guess he's telling you that Bowie is going to lay it out against the doctor, but you can't believe him because he's, got a, he's going to get a deal. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bowie isn't in this trial. I've given Mr. Bowie no deal. I don't want Mr. Bowie in here. I want you, if you're going to convict anybody of a crime, you're not going to do it on the word of a bunch of thugs or, or criminals. You're going to do it on, on hard, impervious evidence. Bruce Cutler made a big deal about this, this witness being a, a liar, and this witness never shows up in the trial. And so in time of closing argument, it turns out that Bruce Cutler is actually missing a piece he thought he was going to have, and the prosecution is better positioned because, you know, they didn't call this person that Bruce Cutler called, called a liar. It seemed somehow, some way, that we as the defense had a burden of proof. We had to come forward with certain evidence to convince you of our innocence. We don't have to prove anything. We're presumed innocent. Jeff Robinson, in his case as a lawyer, as a prosecutor, must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Tom was part and parcel of a conspiracy. Maybe Bowie could tell us what Gal said, what it was about. Who's behind it? These are not just speculation. These are questions that you as jurors, with that heavy burden of judging another human being, need an answer to. The state, the county, the people didn't call Bowie. That's a failure of proof, I submit. Now, what's interesting is how trials and courtrooms, they, they have a rhythm and they, they have a vibe. And there's no question that Bruce Cutler, a very prominent, powerful attorney, incredibly successful. But the streets of New York are not like the beaches of Newport Beach. 
And so it's very important for an attorney to try to catch that, that rhythm or vibe that's taking place in the courtroom. But I, I do have to wonder whether or not Bruce Cutler ever really got in sync with these Southern California jury. In the Superior Court of the State of California in and for the County of Orange, we, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Thomas A. Gionis, guilty of the crime of felony, to wit, violation of Section 182.1. When it came back guilty, uh, I felt good for the Wayne family, I, just like I felt guilty for other victims who relatives have been murdered or whatever, and it's, you can sort of see relief from them that, okay, it's over, you know, we now have a verdict. I think that the truth came out, the fact that he was uh, obsessed with winning this custody dispute. And I think the, uh, the, the his compulsion and his obsession came through loud and clear to the jury. Well, we're disappointed uh, in the verdict, naturally, uh, but we feel that uh, we're gonna do fine on appeal. We're gonna file that appeal as expeditiously as possible. And uh, uh, we hope and we expect that eventually uh, Tom Jonas will be vindicated completely. I was very pleased that he was found guilty because he and his family had made threats against the ESA and they thought they would get away with anything they wanted. Like I said earlier, Jonas thinks rules don't apply to him and this showed him that it did. Do you feel the style of your attorney had something to do with the decision that was made? No, I don't. I think it's uh, a predisposition on behalf of the jury to uh, um, take an adverse look at uh, ex-husbands. But there were longs of calls, car phone calls, between you and the others, which eventually... Between me? That was never said, no? never proven, and absolutely false. Gionos is sentenced to five years in prison, $10,000 in fines, and Aisa and Roger Levy, they thought that, they thought that was it. However, uh, it uh, went to an appeals court, and the appeals court overturned it. Among the problems, the appeals court said that John Luke had testified that Jonas had told him, I'm so mad, you know, she's not going to get away with this. This could be attorney-client privilege, because he's a lawyer. I talked to Aisa, uh, you know, after, you know, what was it like when they overturned the conviction? They were devastated. After that, the prosecution appealed to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court ended up reimposing the verdict. He did five years. He's a doctor, that, and that's on his record, up the Medical Equality Assurance Board there up there. And so he does pay a price for that. Does it impact what he's done with the rest of his life? I don't know. Hopefully he learned his lesson. In my reflections on this case, many years later, I think the person who really uh, came out of this better is Aisa Wayne. She becomes a student of the law. She gets her license graduating from law school, creating a successful practice later, but she earned her stripes working as a prosecutor for the city of Los Angeles prosecuting cases on behalf of the Los Angeles Police Department. I think that if John Wayne had been alive when this happened, I do not think this would have happened, no. I mean, I think he was a larger-than-life guy. I think that he is old school. I think that he would have gone after Jonas himself with his bare hands. Dr. Thomas Jonas was released from prison in 1997. He's still practicing medicine 
Aisa Wayne is a retired lawyer and lives with her husband, Scott, in Los Angeles. Roger Luby passed away in 2016. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another deep dive into a truly fascinating case. If you want to see more of our original series, they are available to stream for free on the Court TV website. Just check the show notes for a link. And to keep up with the biggest current true crime stories, you can see me every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern on my show, Closing Arguments. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.